invite you once again this morning, if you would, to turn with me to the book of Psalms, Psalm 42 and 43. If you have a if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the back cart that you can use or you can follow along in the insert found in your bulletin. For those of you who are visiting this morning, we are in the middle of a middle uh, of a mini-series of sorts uh, through the book of Psalms, a series that I have entitled Pilgrim Songs, uh, because I want these songs, these psalms, these poems to become the playlist of your lives. That's what they're here for. They're poems and imagery that are meant to move us. As one writer wrote, poetry and singing exist because God made us with emotions, not just thoughts. And so my prayer is that the Psalms not only engage your minds this morning, but engage truly your hearts. You see, God is not afraid of your emotions. God's not afraid of your doubts. God's not afraid of your frustrations. And the Psalms, in part, remind us of that very fact because they teach us how to feel. The Psalms give voice to our feelings. And Psalms 42 and 43 are just this type of psalm. I want to give a few words of introduction even before we read the text this morning. You'll notice that in your Bibles, at the title of this psalm, you'll notice that it's written to the choir master by the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah, the last two psalms we've looked at have been uh, songs of David. We know David and his story well. In fact, the last psalm we looked at was a very contextual psalm in the life of David as he fled for his life from Saul. The sons of Korah, who were they? Well, the sons of Korah were Levites, meaning they were priests. And specifically, the sons of Korah were priests that were charged with the ministry of singing in the temple worship of God's Old Testament people, Israel. And of course, to the choir master gives us every indication and designation that this was a poem to be sung, a poem to be heard with your ears, a poem to be sung with your lips, a poem like those songs on the radio to get stuck in your head, to find root in your hearts and expression ultimately in your lives. You can also see in the title there that this is a mascal. We don't know exactly what that term means or meant, but we do know this. It comes from the Hebrew verb that means to make someone wise or to instruct. So I don't think it's that far of a reach for us to say this is a song of instruction. This is teaching that points us to hope when life just doesn't seem so hopeful. And lastly, before we read, you may be asking, why why are we looking at two Psalms, 42 and 43? The reason is because most scholars believe that Psalms 42 and 43 are one poem. They're one psalm. A number of ancient manuscripts include the two psalms together under one heading. They're united thematically. You're going to see that as they share a common refrain. And remember that the chapters in your Bible, the verses in your Bible are not inspired. 
Those have been put in later to help us find our way around God's Word. And so we're looking at this one poem, which is 42 and 43. I'm going to read it in its entirety. I invite you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's holy Word. Listen and follow along as I read. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as a deer pants for flowing streams, So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul how I would go with the throng and and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you, From the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep. At the roar of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night His song is sung within me. A prayer to the God of my life, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. God, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I suspect that we've all been there at some point in our lives. Maybe you are there this very morning, at this very moment. You're in a spiritual desert of sorts, where the God who once meant so much to you seems now so distant, even absent altogether. The disappointment of unanswered prayer is heavy. The mystery of his dark providence in your life has sent you spiraling down. Your prayers are cold. Your 
motivation is, is lacking and the questions, the questions are many. Why? Why? Some have called it the dark night of the soul. Others have simply labeled it spiritual depression. Whichever label resounds more to you, it's more common than you think. And you're not alone. You're not alone as you might have imagined. See, the Bible verifies this very fact with Psalms 42 and 43, with this instruction from Korah's sons. We began a couple weeks ago this mini-series on the, on the Psalms, on the Pilgrim Songs, asking this question, what do you preach to yourselves in the muck of life? Well, this psalm, even more pointedly than the psalms we've looked at before, this is a psalm of soul talk. We're going to walk through this this morning a little differently. Rather than exhortations for you to leave with this morning, I'm going to leave you and focus on questions and answers. Questions that the psalmist brings up and answers that the psalmists give. Questions that are our questions, answers, well, one answer in particular that is ours, that is ours to cling to in the dark night of the soul. You see, you can even think about these two psalms as you think about them together. You can think about them as a song, as you commonly know a song, with, with verses and with a chorus that keeps repeating itself and we keep coming back to. You saw that probably when we read it. Verses 1 through 4 are the first verse, and then verse 5 is the chorus. Verses 6 through 10 is another verse, and then verse 11, another chorus. And then Psalm 43, 1 through 4 is verse 3, with verse 5 being the last chorus. So the first question I want us to consider as we consider these two psalms is this. It's a question you've maybe asked recently. Where are you, God? Where are you? Let me begin by asking you to consider, at least think about what you can't live without. What is so essential to your existence that its absence consumes you? And I'm not thinking about silly things. I'm thinking about what brings you life. Maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a a child. For those of us who know and love the Lord, who've been adopted as his children and are part of his family, it's his promises, his voice, and his presence that for us are absolutely essential. They're absolutely necessary. And that's the situation that the writer here finds himself in. Yahweh feels absent. He feels absent because the psalmist is far from home. We don't know exactly what the writer to this psalm is experiencing specifically. There's no indication that his absence from from home, from the city of Jerusalem, is a result of his sin. 
It seems to be it's a result of the oppression of an enemy, but we do know this. He cries in verse 6. Look at it with me. From the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. This is way up north. This is north of the Sea of Galilee. This is far, far from the temple in Jerusalem. And remember, this is his life purpose. He's a son of Korah. He works in the temple. And this distance from the temple means he's not singing. He's not celebrating with God's people. He's not leading them in procession. But most of all, he's not tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. Through all the signs and through all the ceremonies that are part of God's people's worship that points to his salvation. You see, for the psalmist, these things are not peripheral peripheral things in his life. These are not accessories. These are necessities. He must have these things. And if he isn't receiving these things, if he isn't with the Lord, his soul is parched. He needs the Lord's presence like a deer needs a stream of water. We ask, well, doesn't he know? (laughs) Doesn't he know that Yahweh is the one true God, that Yahweh is omnipresent? He's always there. Well, I suspect that he does know that. But what he does remind us of is something we've been reminded of already in this study. And that is that worship matters. That the gathering of God's people is not an incidental thing in our lives. To the soul that hasn't recently communed with God in the presence of this, the worshiping community, amidst the signs and the seals and the means of grace that God has given to his church, if that soul truly loves the Lord, then he ought to be or she ought to be hungry parched for what only can be found here. And so this, though this psalm, this poem was, was sung and was written thousands of years ago, to some degree this still applies to us, still applies to us in new covenant days. Absence from worship ought to still affect us. And I'm not just saying that because I want these chairs to be full. I'm saying that because that's what God, God's Word says. That's where it leads us. And yes, God is always with us. But here, in this place, there is a presence. There is an encouragement. There is life that can be found nowhere else. And that's what he is dying for. Where is God? Where are you, God? Well, the psalmist actually knows, doesn't he? He actually knows that his glory awaits in the temple. So the the more appropriate question maybe for the psalmist is, when can I get back to him? When can I get back there? But the psalmist isn't the only one asking the question. There's another group asking the question, not where where are you God, but where is God? 
See, that's the cry of those who taunt him in verse 3, and he repeats it several times throughout the psalm. It reminded me, as I was thinking upon this this week, it reminded me of a criticism that uh, rippled across social media maybe a year ago, maybe more, maybe more than once, and it was in the wake of one of our nation's shooting tragedies. And it was, it was a politically motivated criticism, and I don't want to get into all of that, but the gist of it was this. As people and as politicians express their concerns, concern and sympathy for a tragedy in our nation, many cried out, we've had enough of your thoughts and prayers. We don't want anything to do with your thoughts and prayers. And it seemed to me in some sense that that declaration is the modern, where's your God, Christian? Why isn't he stepping into these schools, Christian? Why doesn't he intervene? You see, as that question comes to us as God's people, as a taunt in the wake of tragedy, it, it, it unsettles us, doesn't it? The psalmist is unsettled. Where's your God? Where is he now? The psalmist is dying of thirst. He's hungry for his God. He's hearing the voices and the noise around him. And what's the answer? The answer is the chorus. The answer is the chorus that occurs three times in this poem. The answer is singing it, letting it get stuck in your head, letting it embed in your heart. The answer is preaching that chorus to your heart over and over again because as one pastor put it, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you. And so let's think about some soul talk. Verses 5, verses 11, verse 40, or excuse me, verse 5 of chapter 43. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, Nate Hitchcock. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This is the self preached sermon of the psalmist. And it's ours. It's not just his, it's ours. Because in Jesus, in Jesus, the chorus has an even sweeter tone to it. Where are you, God? Where are you, God? And a flood of gospel healing comes to your soul. He hasn't left you despite what you may feel. He will never leave you because the spirit of the risen Christ abides in every one of you that claim his name. He has saved you. He has made you his own. You are his child. Though you're not home yet, he's proved his love and his commitment to you by the sending of his son. And he's unconcerned. Read Psalm 2. He's unconcerned about the taunts of your enemies, about the taunts of the nations. Justice will come. Every knee will bow. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. There is hope in God. That's the first question. And that's the answer. But there's another that the psalmist wrestles with as we move into verses 6 through 10. The psalmist then asks the question, 
Who are you, God? Who are you? See, the more mysterious life becomes for us, especially when that mystery is is hard, we begin to question God. We begin to question who God really is. Job did. You know the story, those of you who know the Bible? He lost everything for no earthly reason. And we read in Job 31, verses 3 and 4, Is not calamity, this is Job speaking, is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways? Does he not remember my steps? And yet all of this, God, who are you? What have I done to deserve this? Are you really, are you really good? Returning to the psalm, a couple things are going on here. The distance is felt and it's far. The taunting continues and it hurts. And all of this uh, metaphorical effect of all of this is literally the psalmist is drowning. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. You see, in contrast to the, the life-giving, flowing streams of water in verse 1, here the psalmist mourns the deafening noise of a waterfall, the continuous, relentless, powerful pounding of the whitecaps. Have you ever felt that way? It's akin to Jonah's cry of, of literal waves, In Jonah 2, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. Of course, the Lord did that literally with Jonah. Into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Why, God? Why all this? Who are you? But notice in verse 7, what are are the key pronouns? Even in Jonah's testimony, we hear it. Your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. Oh, it doesn't answer every question. It doesn't solve every problem. It doesn't reveal every mystery, but it assures us of this. The wind and the waves literally and metaphorically obey him. And they bow to his sovereign will. They bow to his sovereign purpose. And as one commentator explained it well, better a God whose mystery we cannot understand, but who has given us grounds for trusting when we can't understand, than one whose adequacy we cannot rely on or whose interest we cannot be sure of. And so the psalmist, armed with this remembrance, armed with the mystery of sovereignty, the psalmist can bring back to his mind all that is true, all that he already knows about Yahweh. He can extol Yahweh's hesed, this this great Hebrew word that we've talked about a million times. It's, It's untranslatable, but here it's translated steadfast love 
covenant faithfulness, faithful love, loving kindness. He can confess that God is his rock, the only image that is used here in reference to God. And ultimately, he can return to the refrain, to the same chorus that he's letting find root in his heart. Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Brothers and sisters, we are invited to do the same, to not forget in the fog of war, in the smoke and the haze of battle, the clarity, the certainty of who God is. And again, as we sit here today in the new covenant, God has revealed himself in living color through his son, Jesus, the one who said in John 14, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And so the call for us is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Take comfort in who he is and who he's revealed himself to be and who he always will be. Who are you, God? We know. We don't understand it all, but we know you are the God of steadfast love. You are the God who has shown himself in Jesus. One final question to be answered. By the beginning of verse, excuse me, of the beginning of Psalm 43 as we jump into that chapter. The last question for the psalmist says, God, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? Not what will the psalmist do, what, what, what should I do, what am I going to do? Not what will we do, but Yahweh, what are you going to do? See, as the psalmist cries out to the Lord in the midst of this spiritual struggle and darkness, there is an anticipatory assurance of deliverance. He's not hoping that God will do these things in the first verses of Psalm 43, he knows that God will restore and return him to where he longs to be. And so he personifies God's light. He personifies God's truth, making them guides back to the Lord's presence. He looks to the certain future and he finds strength there. As we sit here in 2019, as we long for the day when things will be made new, when our dwelling will be with the Lord, what He will do has been proven by what He has already done. There's no need to personify for us because there's a person, the one who declared Himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is God's amen, Paul told the church in Corinth. All the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory, 2 Corinthians 1. And so as this song comes to a close, as the chorus is cried, one more time, the source of its hope, the source of salvation for us as we read this, finds its crescendo in Jesus.
Because of what Jesus has done, there is hope. Because of what Jesus has promised to do, there is hope. Because of who Jesus is, there is hope. Because of who we are in Jesus, there is hope. Brothers and sisters, this broken world, this sinful world, will constantly cause us to question to question the action of others, to question the actions and thoughts and intentions of our own heart, to, to question God himself. Where are you? Who are you? What are you going to do? But in the asking of those questions, I encourage you, preach the answer of this psalm, a chorus for your life's journey. We heard it earlier. Let me mix the two. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why so downcast, O my soul? If I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you will be also. So hope in God, your salvation. Preach that. Preach that to yourself today and every day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the experience of this servant of yours who in their struggle and in their pain and in their darkness cried out. You, Holy Spirit, have given us those cries that they might breathe life into our sorrow, into our mystery. And while mystery remains in the, in the desert, it remains in the darkness, we are comforted knowing where our hope lies, knowing the certainty of who our God is. And so may this word, by the power of your Spirit and in your grace, find deep root in the lives of your people. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.